0: welcome to a spooky edition of Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John.
1: And I'm Andy. And we've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered significant and are assigning them to ourselves by random drawing.
0: For this episode, it was foretold that we would discuss Jerry Goldsmith's score to the 1976 horror film The Omen.
1: The Omen was written by David Seltzer, produced by Harvey Bernhard, and directed by Richard Donner. John, tell us about The Omen.
0: Well, as I feared, The Omen is a scary movie. (laughs) About the son of the devil, the Antichrist, being raised by an unsuspecting couple, only to have their world fall apart.
1: The unsuspecting couple is played by Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. The nanny they hire to care for their son is played by Billy Whitelaw. And a photographer who suspects that something is not as it seems is played by David Warner.
0: Has Gregory Peck been hoodwinked unknowingly into raising the son of the devil as his own son? (laughs) Are those around him being killed and tormented because of the child's demonic agenda? The answer is yes. Yes, obviously. Obviously, it's the omen. Good enough?
1: Good enough. John, you said you were scared of scary movies and that you were scared (laughs) to have to watch this. Yeah. How are you doing?
0: I'm I'm okay. It wasn't that scary.
1: It wasn't that scary, was it? Really?
0: No. (laughs) No. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I just never, it was never my thing, you know, horror movies, some people really get a kick out of uh, scaring themselves silly, I just never liked it, I never liked the, you know, jump scares, and I just don't find it pleasant, so I just stayed away from whole genre of stuff, there weren't really any jump scares in this one. Though.
1: I was gonna say, I mean, there are some slightly jumpy things that happen, but it's not that kind of movie. No, it's not. Should we do the extra spoiler warning that we usually do? This conversation is just going to devolve very quickly into utter spoilers because in a horror movie, the whole point is kind of like, oh, what's going to happen? I don't know. So anything we tell you is stuff that happens. And uh, if you want the full effect, watch it while you still don't know.
0: Yeah, fair enough. But like, what the hell do you think is going to happen?
1: (laughs) Yes. Were you at any point scared while watching this movie?
0: Scared? Uh
1: scared might not be the word for this scary movie so what what might be the word for what's going on in this movie it's definitely not in any genre other than horror is it no although i did see some stuff about how gregory peck signed on because he liked the idea that it was really a psychological drama
0: is it? Yeah, well, see, this is something I wanted to ask you about, Andy. Because I saw, yeah, where people said, oh, it's really a psychological drama. It's really about whether or not he believes that these strange things happening around him are real or he's going crazy or mm-hmm. is it not really supernatural? Is it all in his head, in his wife's head? And I want to say that I do don't buy any of that (laughs) You don't buy in
1: that there's any ambiguity about it
0: yeah I don't buy that there's any ambiguity and I felt like to whatever extent the movie wanted to pretend at ambiguity I did not go along with it
1: I hadn't seen this movie before but I understood what it was going to do and I must admit to some surprise at how basic it was in doing it (laughs) I mean, this movie is really trying to walk in the footsteps of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist.
0: Sure. Movies which I have not seen. All right. So I'm going to ask you, what's it? Is it like those movies? Uh, also, what's the music like for those movies?
1: It's like them in the sense that the video would be shelved next to them. <laughs> In Rosemary's Baby, there's a legitimate ambiguity for much of the movie about what's in whose head. Or even if it tips its hand a little bit too far for you to really wonder, you can still play the game that you're wondering In a way that's a little tastier than any game that this movie offers. And The Exorcist has a feeling of seriousness and darkness to it and intensity that I can't say this particularly had. This movie is mostly about watching Gregory Peck looking concerned. (laughs) And, you know, that plus the devil is kind of an interesting recipe did you want me to mention the scores from those other movies the main thing in rosemary's baby is like a creepy lullaby that like oh the mother's gonna sing this lullaby to the demon child (laughs) (laughs) and the exorcist doesn't have original music in it but it has a piece of borrowed music the tubular bells that got very popular which is like a kind of intense gothic piano thing that isn't really very similar to what this is And it's nowhere near as music forward as this.
0: So if this movie is really standing on the shoulders of those movies, but the music from those movies is not really a precursor to this, then I think we have to credit Jerry Goldsmith with really pioneering what I think a horror movie sounds like. Certainly what a religioso horror (laughs) movie sounds like.
1: And I was thinking, I wonder what kind of predecessors there are for that. And I'm not such a horror buff that I know, so uh, let's just throw up our hands and say we don't know what the (laughs) precursors are to the chanting here. But this is definitely a very prominent example of the religioso horror movie. I think this soundtrack is a standard for haunted houses. Oh, yeah. If people play a record in the background of their haunted house, they'd pick the Omen soundtrack.
0: Well they'd pick some of the Omen soundtrack.
1: <laughs> That's right. You actually have to make your own mix of it because you can't play the whole album. The
0: whole album, if you just let it play, especially like on Shuffle, you might have this wind up playing. And uh, this doesn't sound like a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! This is the love theme for The Omen. And this is the theme that Goldsmith sets up for the relationship between Gregory Peck and Lee Remick and their idyllic life at home with their son before his true nature starts to show.
1: It's a good theme man i gotta say it earwormed me good this week
0: all right well we're gonna fight because i did not like this theme and i thought that the movie and the score would have been drastically improved by cutting it out entirely
1: i mean i don't know what to tell you about its role in relation to this movie i just know that this theme got in my head (laughs) and it's so 70s it's so so 70s easy listening love theme and yeah Jerry Goldsmith's a great melodist, and this is lovely.
0: Well, I'm definitely not going to contest that it's a great melody and that he's a great melodist. Sure, it's a very, very lovely melody. But in terms of its function in the movie, it stopped me short.
1: On your first watch? I mean, it's the first thing you hear, pretty much.
0: Well, crucially, it's not the first thing you hear. Oh, okay, fair enough, yeah. The first thing you hear is this... This is the title music. This is introducing you to the world of the movie. You see creepy silhouette of a boy, and the shadow he casts is an upside-down cross, and it's red, and there's, you know, look, it sounds like this. It sounds the creepiest that it can sound. And then, like, three minutes later, we hear this play. And I just went, what are you talking about? Just a second ago, we were hearing this get your story straight. What are you trying to tell me this is?
1: That was your first viewing response that it was jolting and confusing to you?
0: Oh yeah. And then it only got worse because he really doubles down on it. You know, there's this like happy family life montage with just the soupiest 70s rendition of it. And I just felt like, boy, this is selling to me hard that they are not horrified yet. This is pre horror yes i just felt like why are you doing this to me you already told me that it was going to be horror i still remember that you played this for me want me to forget that you played that
1: well no i mean i think exactly the point is that he knows that you remember you know and that's the poignancy of it i think that you're supposed to feel a kind of like oh these good things i hope they never go away like (laughs) i know they're going to that's how i feel going into a lot of scary movies I can savor starting a movie and being like, I know that things really go downhill in this movie. I already know it, but things seem fine now. And that's already scary. How can things this fine? How are things going to go downhill from here? Oh my God, that makes me nervous. I think there, there's an idea that this movie, because it has the esteemed Gregory Peck in it and is going to be about his burden as the parent, that an important aspect of the horror of this movie is going to be that the family unit, the, what could be more sacred and filled with love and feelings of the family, that this is going to be degraded by the horror and that we should feel as much pain about that as possible. We're going to have to watch him get a phone call that his wife is dead and we're gonna have to watch him agonizing about you know the climax of the movie is like the binding of isaac he has to kill his own son oh the agony of that and i think that jerry goldsmith was putting this beautiful music in juxtaposition with scary music because it's that crossing from a feeling of a safe family feeling to horror that was supposed to be the package that was being delivered and again i'm just i'm just saying i think that was the intention whether it landed for me i i don't know
0: well I mean, look, maybe it's just idiosyncratic on my part because I kind of am skeptical of the whole premise of a horror movie. Because you don't want to feel bad. Is that it? <laughs> um, I mean, do you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's reasonable. You know, horror movies are a strange thing. Yeah. Why do people want to see things go terribly, terribly wrong? They do.
0: I guess so. And yeah, I've always just found it unpleasant. So I guess I'm just starting from this place of skepticism of like, all right, yeah, I know you're going to—
1: You're going to ruin these people's lives. Yeah,
0: you're going to—like, why are you bothering to tell me that you're not? Stop lying to me. There was a disconnect for me about what the audience is supposed to know and what the movie thinks it's telling me. I kind of felt like it was that uh, psychology experiment where you show a little kid a box of candy, but then it really has pencils in it, and then you ask them if somebody else came into the room now Would that person think that there's candy in the box or pencils? And up to a certain age, the kid says, the new person will think there's pencils in there because that's what the kid has just learned. Only after you pass a certain threshold are you able to ascribe incorrect beliefs to other people and realize, oh no, the new person is going to think that there's candy in the box because it's candy box.
1: Theory of mind.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's a theory of mind experiment. And I've just felt like this movie was... On the wrong side of that, like, you know, why do you think that I need to think that there's candy in the box? You already told me that there were pencils in there.
1: I mean, I think this is somewhat idiosyncratic, although the objection makes a certain sense. I think it's idiosyncratic to someone who doesn't like horror movies because that is part of the offer that life is good and then it goes bad (laughs) you know it's not a tragedy if there's nothing to be lost and it's not horror if there's no alternative to horror
0: (sighs) well all right i guess i understand that i guess the cheesiness of this particular tune and its treatment (laughs) wasn't helping
1: yeah well it was a lot i mean it's a lot (laughs) jerry goldsmith definitely had this tendency to try to find the most romantic take on things i feel like it's very characteristic of jerry goldsmith to try to amplify romantic or loving feelings that are just barely subtext but he thinks that that's what needs weight
0: I mean, he certainly does that to beautiful, terrific effect in Chinatown that we've already talked about.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, a lot of the emotion in that Chinatown score is dug up from deep beneath the actual action. Yeah, that's right. It's not what the dialogue is about. It's not what the screenplay is really about, but... He managed to find it, and it lifts up the movie to have it put into the music. And I guess I agree with you that the particular silkiness of this theme...
0: (laughs) That's a nicer word than cheesiness.
1: Yeah, well, look, I have to say (laughs) that I didn't love this movie. It's pretty ridiculous. Sure. But I have a natural, nostalgic fondness for movies of this era and this sort of tone which combines all of this comfort and uh you know like everything is sort of warm tones everything looks like the 70s everyone is seems to be having a nice time and it feels cozy and then they're like oh in the world of coziness everything is terrible and horrible and that i'm always happy to have that put on a tv in front of me even if it's not very good and so to me those strings playing that melody you know this is kind of stuff we were sort of dinging john barry for doing all the time right here he's doing it and in this combination of elements I tend to be like, oh, as it should be, there is an excess of warm feeling being poured into this. Of course, someone had to pour it in. Of course, there it is. That's how I feel about it.
0: I mean, he takes this love theme and weaves it through so much of the score. Yeah. Yeah. The priest comes into Gregory Peck's office to warn him about the son of Satan, and after he leaves, and Gregory Peck is ruminating about this, and, you know, he feels guilty because he secretly knows that it's not really his son, and it's an adopted son, that he never told his wife there was a switch at the hospital, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that is represented in the music by this love theme kind of interplaying and weaving back and forth with the scary stuff in the score, the dissonant strings and the weird effects and stuff. And that kind of thing happens all throughout the movie. All the way through to, yes, when he gets the phone call that his wife has died uh, because uh, Mrs. Baylock, the nanny, pushes her out of the hospital window.
1: Threw her out with great force, apparently.
0: Apparently, she falls and she crashes through the roof of an ambulance that's below the window. Yeah. I guess I thought, well, you know, lucky for her, she's already in an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late anyway.
1: It wasn't lucky for her.
0: But yeah, he gets this phone call. Yes, this is he. And oh no, and he casts his Gregory Peck eyebrows down, and this love theme comes back and I really do feel like every single time I heard it. Every time it was kind of juxtaposed against the rest of the score material, which I want to get to because...
1: Yeah, yeah. I like that we're doing it in the wrong order here. This is great. Yeah,
0: this is such the wrong order because the rest of the material is great, I think. But whenever I heard this theme playing around, getting mixed in with other stuff, or just playing on its own, all the different ways we hear it, I just wanted it to go away. I just felt like, stop with this. This is uh, a lie. This is a put-on. This is not what the movie is. It took me out of it every time I heard it.
1: All right, well, we're on very different pages with this, which is fine. Maybe part of it is just a question of, well, what is the movie? Like, the thing I was just trying to articulate about your coziness is what gets horrified. That's what kind of movie I thought this was supposed to be. Maybe you watched it a completely different way. What would you say is the nature of this movie?
0: Well, I would say that the nature of this movie... Is this? This is it, man. You know, this is the juice. This is what I was here to see, and here, this is what I thought everybody came to this movie for.
1: It's certainly the people who are building haunted houses bought the soundtrack for this.
0: Right. Uh, Maybe at the end of the episode, we can give you a list of cues that you should take (laughs) off if you're going to put this soundtrack on your haunted house playlist. But yeah, the stuff that belongs in the haunted house, that's what I thought this was. And I think that's what it is, mostly. And when it's doing that, I dug it. And you dug the movie? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, I dug the demonic chanting and the horror sound effects in the music. And I thought that was a real achievement.
1: Okay, because my experience of it in the movie was that what we were seeing on screen for the horrible scenes, you know, yes. the dogs running after Gregory Peck, or God knows a little kid on a tricycle going in a circle. A circle, <laughs> I'm telling
2: you.
1: It seemed to me always verging toward the comical in a mismatch of intensity, and it played like Jerry Goldsmith feeling like, well, I don't care about horror movies, so I'm going to have at this. I'm just going to go as big as I want because it's fun to write for a chorus. ¶¶ I didn't feel like it was scoring in a satisfying way and I know that that's probably heresy to people who love these movies in reading up about this movie I see that there are people who consider it one of their core horror movies and they can't get enough of it and I want to show respect to them if they're out in the audience but I was <laughs> surprised it didn't really work for me yeah in the way it was supposed to well
0: I mean yeah it does sound like we had really different experiences watching this movie because I thought I was here to see some horror stuff I knew there was going to be demonic chanting and I knew there was going to be screechy string effects Mm -hmm. and yeah Jerry Goldsmith he said that he really had a field day and it was the most freedom he felt writing a score since his score for Planet of the Apes that we also talked about Yeah, when he also went in this really hard avant-garde direction so he went back to that well to some degree. This isn't 12 tone like Planet of the Apes', is, but there's a lot of strange instrumental effects and so much dissonance, dissonance, dissonance. <laughs>
1: Sounds like a field day, for sure.
0: It sounds like a field day. And I guess what you're saying is that to you it came across as self-parody.
1: Not self-parody, but remember in the Planet of the Apes conversation I said that some of the action music so outclassed the actual on-screen action that it felt a little like composer time. And I can enjoy that because I like movie scores, but it wasn't really meeting the movie. And here I felt that almost top to bottom. Once the orchestra got pumping, I was like, wow, look at this tacky, you know, cheap. It looks cheap. And it was in fact a very cheap movie.
0: Yeah, it does in fact look cheap. Yeah. And the budget was low and they had to make some special dispensation to get the money to pay Jerry Goldsmith.
1: And... I mean, I think that kind of says it all for what the aesthetic effect of this is, is that the budget was expanded so that the music could be better than the movie expected to have and this movie has better music than it itself expects
0: yeah well i'll definitely go along with that but i mean again for me the whole concept is kind of ridiculous on its face so the fact that there was this ridiculous mismatch between the quality and intensity and fervor and demonic dissonance of the music and the sure kind of tepid and unimaginatively staged and cheaply produced action on the screen like it didn't <laughs> I already thought it was ridiculous, (laughs) even before that mismatch. You know,
1: I'll say, I tried to get into a state of mind. I tried to get into a music leads state of mind. I wanted to be like, okay, I'm watching a musical experience. This is like a ballet or an opera or something. And this is kind of action taking place in the dream of the music. Because I know that when I was a kid, I would watch things that way. And it really didn't matter whether they made real sense. Because if they made kind of dream sense and music was pushing it, Hmm. I could get very scared of things like that. And I couldn't get there, and I don't know if it's because I'm old or because the movie just resists it or what, but I wanted it to be that. I wanted to believe that the reason this is beloved is because it's possible to see it all as, you know, a weird dream, and Jerry Goldsmith is conducting you through it, but I can't say that I actually felt that.
0: Well, I'm going to posit that part of the problem that prevented you from feeling that is the calculations... Through the first act of the movie, it starts out with tension and then it wants you to really embrace the idyllic, uh, lovely times and then uh, stuff gets increasingly troublesome from there. But I just don't think the screenplay does a good job of steering you through that progression and the score by being a sidecar on the motorcycle that is taking that not really well laid out road, I think it makes it hard to get invested. But
1: again... Maybe we've already hammered this into the ground. Probably. But the scary movie that you think is coherent in itself, it's just a movie about... I never said it was coherent. <laughs> I said it was, uh, I mean, you know, devil stuff. type of movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, devil stuff. Evil stuff. Evil stuff.
0: Right. That's all I thought there was going to be. And there was. There definitely
1: was evil stuff. But in your mind, just seeing some evil stuff happen is its own reward, and that can be a whole movie.
0: Well, in my mind, I have to sort of uh, squint and apply my theory of mind and say that there are some people in the world for whom. <laughs> that is their own reward
1: ah. <laughs>
0: and I guess this is what they want to see
1: people who prefer pencils to candy <laughs>
0: exactly right
1: All right. So I really think we're uh, strangely on opposite sides of some fence here. So I was going to say, okay, what's your favorite scoring moment? And like, they're definitely different. They're definitely not the same because of everything you've been saying. What's your favorite scoring moment?
0: All right. I knew you were going to ask me this time. So I have one picked out, ready to go. Yeah. What is it? Well, for me, it's the moment when, you know, the kind of poorly laid out course that I was mentioning clicked back into place. And I felt like, oh, okay. The music is taking me somewhere, and it's the same place the movie is taking me, and I can get on the ride with it there. Get on the ride with it because it's the moment when Gregory Peck and Lee Remick are driving to church in their car, and Damien, their child, the Antichrist, (laughs) freaks out about them getting close to a church... And the music comes in with this rhythmic, crazy texture, really committing to a propulsive, rhythmic feel. This was the first moment where I felt like, oh, something supernatural is going on here. There's some real significance to antichrist cannot be exposed to the um, to the Christ Christ
1: <laughs> the pro-Christ the
0: pro- excuse me the pro-Christ yes uh, and if they meet they'll annihilate each other this grinding inexorable energy Robert? something wrong?
2: he seems I don't know he just seems scared to death
0: is he ill? You know, it's making an assertive statement about what's happening on the screen that's not otherwise in the picture. But in this case, like I said, for the first time, it clicked for me. Oh, yeah, sure, he's the Antichrist. You know, something really is about to go down here. This made sense to me. And
1: you know where that rhythmic thing comes from. Yeah. Goldsmith said in an interview that Richard Donner, you know, it's 1975 that they're making this movie. Richard Donner had just seen Jaws. And he said, I really liked how that simple rhythmic thing in Jaws propelled the movie forward. And that right. a horror movie had this motor pushing it and we should do that this is jerry goldsmith's version of that
0: yeah and of course you know the motivating force and the thing that's getting propelled in this movie doesn't have nearly the effectiveness or purity or just like screenwriting chops of what it is in jaws and the way that williams is able to hook into it but i think for this moment goldsmith does accomplish something of that sort of an effect and i I really enjoyed it
1: well to compare it directly I feel like Donner's takeaway from Jaws that, you know, the movie benefits from propulsion Mm -hmm. is a superficial understanding of what that music was doing. It relates to a shark and what kind of threat a shark poses in a direct way where this movie, yeah, probably just needs something to propel it along. But that propulsive quality doesn't relate to the Antichrist, at least not for me. I mean, you're saying this moment really worked for you. And this is really a case of us being on opposite sides of this fence, because (laughs) this was a moment where i was like it's a little kid i can see that it's a little child actor in a car yeah
0: who's not really child acting very well i gotta say
1: he doesn't do anything he throws a little (laughs) tantrum that looks exactly like a little kid throwing a tantrum right not worse (laughs) i mean The whole movie, he doesn't do anything. Also, his parents don't ever really talk to him or relate to him, so he's not even really treated like a son, which could have had some interest in it. At the end, when he has to kill his own son, I felt a little like, yeah, but you never talk to him or anything. It doesn't seem like you know him very well. I feel like the whole movie is a cheat because it says it's going to be about an evil little kid, but then it's really like a movie about worried parents, and we hired a little kid to fulfill the necessity of there being a little kid in it. Anyway, so that scene where they're driving up to the church, the music, I thought, was somewhat absurd because I had exactly the opposite <laughs> reaction to you All right. where you said, oh, I get it. There's something really going on here. I was like, there's nothing going on here. <laughs> you know, I feel you pushing. I feel Jerry Goldsmith getting out behind this car and pushing it. But I will say I do like the sound of it. I like listening to it on the soundtrack. I like that he's doing, you know, the standard Rite of Spring thing where you get a regular rhythm going and then you pop a couple of beats in there like...
0: Sure. You called out that the music for Jaws was derived, uh, in some ways, from Rite of Spring, and so it seems very fitting that they kind of had this common inspiration.
1: Yeah. Well, I think Jerry Goldsmith was basically assigned to resemble that, so he said, "All right, I know the kind of thing you're talking about. You're kind of talking about sure. a da, 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 right? Yeah. Right. That's what, that's what he wanted. <laughs> anyway, I, I just like that the pops here, the timbre of them, is this organ bloop that kind of gives a surprising color in those moments. <Language> but as far as scoring the movie that stuff didn't land for me so my moment yeah what's your moment is the exact opposite oh good i liked the scene when lee remick has been injured but she's not dead yet and she's in the hospital gregory peck comes to comfort her and she whispers don't let him kill me about her own son, how horrifying that is. And we hear a sting for the horror of that, you know, that it's come to this, that she's afraid of her own demon son killing her. And the sting is this suddenly flutter tongue in the flutes. Don't let him kill me. Don't let him kill me. And that actually spooked me. I was like, ooh, yeah, this is bad. You know it's like a shiver of horror and it felt like oh i shivered at the right moment Cassie. and it was this cool sound jerry goldsmith is great at making cool sounds and then the cue from there proceeds to be this sinking feeling Cassie. applied to a motif that we haven't talked about but it's kind of the main Cassie. motif of the whole movie Da da da, da da. Right. Da. It's the
0: first thing you hear at the top of the
1: movie. The first thing you hear. And then you hear it again during the main title, during this chant, as a kind of creepy, violent string figure. The violins are doing it. then you also hear it built into the love theme, as it were. It's the bridge section of the love theme. It crosses, it touches everything in the movie.
0: Yeah, see, this is why I thought that the A section of the love theme could just be snipped out because I think that this motif is getting the job done. This motif, yeah, he plays it on a high piano some of the time, it has a kind of music boxy effect. And when it's played in this mode, it seems to stand for their home life and the Ironically, undercut simple pleasures of things. There you go. Yeah, so I thought this is doing that, but the <laughs> uh, whatever I heard that, I was like, no, just do the music boxy thing. <laughs> That's fine, because that yeah, like you said, it goes back and forth. It communicates with both sides, with the good and the bad.
1: Yeah, I think that that theme with the sixth, that little thing that you're calling a music box thing, is really clever, really good scoring, shows how smart Jerry Goldsmith is, because when it's played on the piano, it sounds simultaneously like a love theme and a horror theme. And a spooky... And spooky.
0: Like the clowns are coming to get you, unsettlingly spooky children kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, it's easy, I think, to imagine a theme that could be played prettily or could be played spookily but this I feel like is both at once it really doesn't have to lean either way to get both across and that's really clever and it's I think because that sixth promises that you're going to hear something pretty that's you know association I think in a previous episode we talked about how a lot of pretty themes have a sixth in them but then it doesn't know how to go anywhere else it just dangles there helplessly There's something wrong with it because it just hangs out on the same stick. Da 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 da. da. Oh, it starts to sound stunted or yeah, helpless is the mm-hmm. feeling. So I really like that. And I like when it showed up in the hospital room when you hear it starting to face the fact that things are not going to work out for this family. They are not going well, and I I like that. It worked for me.
0: Well, I don't dislike that cue. I think that's good, and I agree with your reasons for saying why it's good, but it's strange to me that you would pick that out as your favorite cue in this movie. Because
1: it was the moment when I was watching the movie when I felt that the music clued me in to a feeling that would have been a very quiet feeling without it but now was all around me. All right. During that scene was one of the only times when I felt like this proposal of, hey, we'll get Gregory Peck to be in a horror movie, and that will have its own meaning. In that scene, I felt like I had a glimpse of that meaning. It didn't seem like an aspiration. It seemed like the actual movie (laughs) I was watching during that scene. Okay. (laughs) And to you, I also say... Okay.
0: (laughs) All right, good. Well, you know, look, speaking of going through the music in this movie in the wrong order, let's really dive into... Talk about
1: the damn chant. Talk
0: about the the damn and the, the chant. Yes. So we should say what these Latin words that they're chanting are, that Jerry Goldsmith went to his buddy, a Latin scholar, and said, you know, what would be in a Latin black mass? Like, make up some satanic ritual thing. And they came up with sanguis bibimus corpus edimus, Drink the blood, eat the body.
1: We drink the blood, we eat the body. That's right,
0: the U.S. ending. And, you know, Ave Satani, Hail Satan, Versus Christus, Antichrist. And all this stuff just kind of rolls around and around and around, and it sounds like, yeah, religious chanting.
1: Did you see on Wikipedia that they point out that he didn't really go to a Latin scholar, he just went to the choir director, who would be, of course, conversant with Latin, but that some of this Latin is just plain wrong? Ah. <laughs> Ave Versus Christus means like ave towards christ and antichrist would just be antichristi
0: well they say versus christis
1: (laughs) they say it a lot
0: to mean antichrist
1: that's what they sing because it doesn't really matter whether what they're singing makes sense he just needed some latin
0: (laughs) what's so funny to me is that (laughs) this main title track which is called ave satani hail satan was nominated for best original song (laughs) In 1976, this is nuts.
1: And I have to assume that during the Oscar ceremony, they had the Ave Satani singers come out and do a special onstage version.
0: It's Neil Diamond is presenting the award for original song, and, you know, he lists off the other songs. I think Barbara Streisand winds up winning for her song for her version of A Star is Born, yeah. but, like, he lists off the songs, and he just says, among all these other regular movie songs, Ave Satani by Jerry Goldsmith, one of the songs that could be the best song of the year. These <laughs> songs are Ave Satani, music and lyrics by Jerry Goldsmith. This whole enterprise could easily have been just a prank to get Neil Diamond to, to say Ave Satani. Ave Satani. So they,
1: you could have that clip and make it your ringtone. You know, <laughs> it is striking how few people have covered this song. <laughs> like not a lot of bands want to take it on because I understand it's yeah. hard to put your own spin on it. You know,
0: I'll admit I kind of found myself Walking around my house, singing this to myself, it got in my head. You know, I was walking around going "Songues, baby," and and then I kind of stopped myself and I thought, "Wait a minute, what is in my head?" Because there's like no melody; it is intentionally a melodic. It's repeated notes. The stuff that I kept finding myself singing were just repeated notes. song yeah, baby moose."
1: It's just supposed to sort of evoke Gregorian chant, right? and not a song, per se. And did you see the interview where Goldsmith said, you know, once you have that text, it just writes itself. Any idiot could write something with a Latin text.
0: <laughs> I think the answer to what was in my head, though, because it's not a melody that is in my head, is that he seems to have wanted to run with the notion that this was a rhythmic-based score. You yeah. know, Donner said to him, I wanted it to be rhythmic and propulsive like Jaws. So he turned the dial all the way away from melody to rhythm as to what was going to be happening in his music. So what I'm hearing in my head... As I sing that to myself, is while well, these chords are changing and there's these textures, that's what gets stuck.
1: Right. Everything other than what you're singing. Yes,
0: everything other than what the notes that I'm singing are. Yeah.
1: And what the orchestra's doing is worth mentioning. They're going. Dum, bum, 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 which, you know, is a form of the Dies Irae, which is the obligatory thing that composers do when they're writing about death.
0: <laughs> Look, if you're going to bring it up, you got to say what it is.
1: It's an actual Gregorian chant. Plain
0: chant, yeah.
1: It's a piece of the Mass for the Dead that I think Berlioz was the first one to say, Hey, this will be a great signifier of death. And then it just caught on in all these classical composers. And then especially a lot of movie composers feel like, oh, The Dead, I know what I should play. Right, You've heard it. It's in everything.
0: It's in another horror movie, The Shining.
1: That's right. That's probably the most famous is the beginning of The Shining.
0: Yeah, but it shows up in a lot of scores and a lot of everything. Yeah. I've put it in things I've written.
1: <laughs> I mean, also, it shows up in things, I think, inadvertently because it's a very standard four note figure, but he probably knew what he was doing to put it down there in the bass like that. Sure. You know, that accompaniment also sounds to me like the Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet march that people have probably heard. It starts with the same yeah. kind of in the bass.
0: Sure, that's been in commercials and stuff. Yeah, I hear that.
1: Yeah. And as for the singing, I know I said we don't know what the precursors are. And in terms of horror movies, I really don't. But here's two loose data points just for the style. In 1969, Jerry Goldsmith had written this concert cantata called Christus Apollo with a text by Ray Bradbury, which is kind of a space-age, spiritual, mystical thing. Uh, and here's Way on that. And then the previous year, a major film score of 1968 won the Best Scorer Oscar, was John Barry's score for The Lion in Winter, which is a medieval story with no horror, but uh, here's what he wrote for that.
0: Well, this texture of this, like, coarse, rhythmic. Chanting, having this kind of heightened intensity and having religious weight but being foreboding. I think it's impossible to get out from the shadow of the influence which continues to be an influence on film music of all kinds today, which is Carmina Burana by Carl Orff.
1: And pretty much particularly the first song in Carmina Burana, the first movement, O Fortuna.
0: Yeah, so Carmina Burana is uh, this choral piece written by Carl Orff, I think in the 30s. Mm-hmm. It's based on some medieval Latin texts that he found. Well, actually, they're not all in Latin. Some of them are in versions of German. And yeah, the really, really famous one is the first movement in it called O Fortuna and you've probably heard it in umpteen trailers and commercials and you know football promos and things on tv this is just everywhere i think what's important to point out is that it's secular it's explicitly not religious A lot of these songs are sort of odes to hedonism and drinking and uh, lust and the ways of the world. O Fortuna refers to the wheel of fortune that takes people up and down through life and very worldly concerns. I think a lot of the punch of the piece is using this big choral format, a chorus and orchestra together, singing not Religious stuff. The chorus is so associated with the church There's just something a little transgressive to kind of use it for explicitly unchurchy things.
1: There definitely is a flavor of ritual. Yeah. There's something like a rite about mm-hmm. the way Carmen Barana is presented, and that's relevant here.
0: Yeah, it makes you think of a cultish kind of a setting. People are getting together, they're sort of exercising their religious muscle. So, 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 so. But it's not religious in that yeah, you know, it feels there's just a little bit of friction there that is, I think, an intended part of the art.
1: You know, I do wonder sometimes whether the original audience for Carmina Burana, whether it sounded that way to them or whether that's something we've been trained to hear. Because I was thinking as we listened to Ave Satani that there isn't actually a lot of religious music that would have any such rhythm as this. Oh yeah. It isn't really modeled on actual church music. No I
0: think you're right it's taking the performing forces associated with religious ritual and twisting them to do things that they would never do in a religious ritual. Ave Satani sort of goes a step further makes it actually demonic but I think it's kind of an evolution of the same perversion if you will. I think an important influence in turn on Carmina Burana that was written, what was it, like 10, 15 years earlier or something by Stravinsky is this ballet that he wrote called Les Noces, which is about a peasant wedding festival. And this is really stuff you would never hear voices do in a religious setting, but you can hear in its hard rhythm and unexpected, jangly presentation of syllables I think you can really hear both Carmina Varana and The Omen taking dissent from this
1: You know, while we're listening to this Would be a great time to mention our sponsor.
0: Good point, Andy. While we're listening to this, boy, you might want to know what kind of things Stravinsky is doing to bring off this very unusual sound.
1: Yeah, this has a famously eccentric instrumentation. He actually did it several times. There's a bunch of different versions of it. And this final version with these pianos is like a one of a kind orchestra that he came up with.
0: And I am very conveniently and easily looking at this one of a kind orchestration because I am looking it up in and Coda, the streaming subscription app for sheet music.
1: Encoda is a subscription service like Spotify or Netflix that gives you access to an enormous library of sheet music. In the preferred editions from a long list of prominent publishers, you have immediate access to millions of pages.
0: Encoda makes it easy for you to call up all kinds of sheet music and study it, practice, play, perform it. You can mark it up right there in the app and do whatever you need to do with it without having to worry about tracking down hard-to-find print editions. It's all right. there on any of your favorite devices.
1: So go to your app store and download Encoda, that's N K O D A, sign up for their free trial and get access to the whole library, including Lenos in multiple versions, which uh, we should get back to talking about.
0: Sure. Thanks, Encoda.
1: So this actually is just occurring to me that this kind of is going to come full circle. Stravinsky wrote this piece, Lenos, because he had a fascination with, you know, ritual traditions, deep traditions, having this kind of statue-like formal quality to it. And this links us all the way back to the Rite of Spring that we were talking about, which is, you know, a pagan rite. Yeah. Stravinsky's famous piece with the dot 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 was supposed to represent ritual but not traditional religious ritual, some kind of sort of fantasy past that stands outside any kind of real cultural context, just the forms and the feeling of that it's supposed to inspire kind of horror and wonder at its foreignness but its ritual quality and that, indeed, is what Jerry Goldsmith is doing with Ave Satani. He is suggesting some kind of fantastical imaginary culture <laughs> that has some fantastical imaginary ritual that we're listening to. That doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> oh no, Andy.
1: I mean, this was what's really striking to me about this score, is that it is implying that there is somewhere a whole congregation of Satanists <laughs> who will be chanting at full force on like a big day this is a major holiday when that kid is going around on his tricycle in a circle they have a whole (laughs) mass that they do about that you never see these people you know they're like the greek chorus the satanic chorus you never see a church of them Actually, you do see some priests who turned to Satanism and it came back to bite them, or, you know, they're trying to get out of it now, but they're just some pathetic priests. They couldn't sing this music. (laughs) This community doesn't exist, and yet he brings that feeling of a whole culture to bear on the movie, which I thought was an interesting way of trying to give weight and depth to these things that are just silly little actions on screen otherwise. But I never totally believed that this was coming from anywhere. You know what I'm saying?
0: Well, I think the answer is that
1: it... It's a silly question.
0: (laughs) ...is that these voices are being used not quite as literal voices, but really just as musical instruments. You know, it's kind of fudging it because in this case the musical instruments are pronouncing words that have meaning, kind of But Jerry Goldsmith is very, very interested in the musical instrument that the human voice is And all kinds of things that you can do with it I mean, in the past couple of Jerry Goldsmith episodes, we've had, you know, little segments that have been menageries of weird things he does with instruments that you're not really supposed to do to get funny sounds out of them. And he's up to his old tricks again here. Yeah, what do you got? Oh, well, you know, starting out with the voices. In some places, he asks the singers to whisper the words sanguis, bibimus, corpus, edimus in independent rhythms of each other, whatever rhythms they want, freely, Kind of leaving it somewhat to chance exactly what it's going to sound like.
1: Yeah, on the DVD documentary, Richard Donner says that when they were recording this stuff, he thought, oh, that's so, so good. And he actually insisted that they record some extra so that he could lay it in for the sound of the breathing of the dog when the dog walks by, which is a pretty cool effect.
0: He also sometimes leaves the pitches up to chance. He asks for the chorus to sing any eight unrelated pitches. (laughs) This kind of somewhat chance-based scoring where you leave it up to the individual performances is sometimes called aleatoric writing and music. Mm -hmm. He does that with the singers. He also does that with the rest of the orchestra. He asks the strings sometimes to play any pitch. He'll often ask for highest note possible, Mm -hmm. which weirdly on some instruments is not exactly defined what the highest note possible is. Like on a piano, it's just the highest note that there is on the keyboard, but on a string you know you make the notes higher by moving your finger closer and closer to the bridge the closer you get the shorter the distance between the notes gets so if you like really screech your finger all the way up there it's kind of hard to say exactly what note you're playing and he just asks for everybody in the string section to do that at once and who knows what notes they're playing
1: scary notes is what they're playing exactly We've just done highest note possible, let's just give Here's the chorus doing lowest note possible
0: Sure, yeah, he asks the chorus To just sing as low as they can get Uh, He has them put their hands over their mouth And take them off again, back and forth Really fast
1: So here's some tricks somewhat familiar from Chinatown with playing with the inside of the piano. But here's a new twist on it. Here's the sound when the photographer notices something weird on the photograph. That is the sound of ping pong balls inside the piano. (laughs) The piano swipes the strings with wire brushes and it sets these ping pong balls bouncing around. And it's just to create a slightly rattling effect. But, (laughs) you know, Jerry Goldsmith is irrepressible. (laughs)
0: Yeah, he also asks for some kind of random notes out of the piano, too. Oh, sure. The pianist is uh, instructed to play a cluster with your forearm. Also, the wind instruments. He sometimes asks for all of the wind instruments to click the keys of their instrument freely, independently of each other, without blowing through it, just to hear the clicking sounds that you can make, you know, with this mechanical object.
1: And then i also just he's a great maker of sounds by normal means yeah. he combines things in interesting ways i really like this moment when he has a horn and a contrabassoon playing opposite each other and it creates kind of a weird effect in your ear like is one of those the overtone of the other or what's going on there mm. John, do you know what the connection with our previous movie is here? You know, with the one degree. Yes, I
0: do. You do. I do indeed. I was going to spring this on you. Yeah, <laughs> the nanny, the short-lived one who yells "It's all for you" to Damien at his birthday party, it's all for you. and then jumps off the building, hanging herself, is Holly Palant. Jack Palance's daughter. That's right. How about that? How about that? She kind of looks like him.
1: You can see it. Yeah, you can see it. She doesn't look too much like him for her own good. No, no, no.
0: (laughs) But, you know, the way her cheeks go.
1: Okay, so, John, in this movie, one of the big shockers, the most transgressive thing in the screenplay, is that when they open up the grave of his mother, his mother is... His mother was a ja! What did you think he was gonna say? What is it that you're trying to say? His mother was a ja! I mean, I assumed he was going to say his mother was a prostitute or something. Like, what's a supposedly horrifying thing that a priest would yell about? Then it sounds like maybe he's saying his mother was a janitor. <laughs> then when they open up the grave, there's a dog skeleton there. And I'm yeah. watching this thought, oh, I see the mother isn't really buried here. They put a dog in instead. You like, I guess that's yeah. sacrilegious. And then only in reading up later was it like, <laughs> yes, so he was born of the devil and a jackal. And I was like, that was his mother?
0: Yeah, his mother was a jack
1: was that your takeaway from that moment
0: no i think i'm with you i think the first time i watched it i thought it's just a placeholder body
1: right exactly it's like these aren't where the real bodies were buried that's the kind of thing that might happen in such a movie yeah because it's not a good idea
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's just what satan thinks is how
1: you make a kid
0: he never went to health class
1: (laughs) satan didn't yeah the screenwriter didn't (laughs) and jerry goldsmith you know god bless him tries to get across that this is truly horrifying when you see the dog skeleton, but I didn't pick up what he was saying, but listen to what the chorus is doing there. Yikes. Yeah. They saw something scary.
0: Well, no, this is the thing that they're most excited about when they all got together (laughs) in their Church of Satan. Like, this is the big climax of their ceremony.
1: Well, you're joking, but I'm not sure that's right. I don't know if that is part of the ceremony. I think you can distinguish between two different uses of the chorus. One is to sound like things are going terribly wrong. And another is to sound like the Church of Satan is in full force today. Like, they do things like this. This is when they open the other grave. (laughs) It's sort of a shock effect. But then later in the scene, when Gregory Peck is running from the dogs, they've got some really exciting church music. This is what their ceremonies sound like, and it's got this great extra kick in the rhythm. He actually gives that syncopated phrase to the chorus in the storm scene earlier.
0: I like that. I love when he has the women in the choir sing unpitched. When they shout, yeah. Yeah, when they just shout. I mean, I guess in terms of making you believe that there's some real religious ceremony somewhere and some real people who are into this that might be singing now, I mean, they're kind of trying to hook it into that weird poem that they keep repeating in the movie. Uh, The Jews return to Zion. And a comet rips the sky, and the Holy Roman Empire rises. Then you and I must die.
1: They're like, now I'm going to the quote from the Book of Revelation, and then they rises, say something that, of course, that's not from the shore, Book of Revelation. <laughs> come on, listen to <laughs> it.
0: It's not even from the Book of Revelations plural. Which they keep saying. Which they keep saying in the movie. The
1: book of Revelations predicted at all.
0: And you know they're all going to get ruled incorrect on Jeopardy for
1: that. <laughs> Would they not accept that?
0: Oh, yeah, that's the first thing they tell you when you try out is don't say Book of Revelations, it's singular.
1: And Alex Trebek would say, uh, no, I'm sorry, and then go to the next oh, yeah. person. And, oh wow. Yeah,
0: oh well, that happens. Watch for that to happen on the show.
1: Speaking of Book <laughs> of Revelation, John, okay. what is the omen in this movie? <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, I think I read that it doesn't really mean anything. (laughs) I think ultimately it kind of is supposed to refer to the sign of the three sixes. That is the omen that, uh, you know, certain people are birthmarked with or something. Right. What did you think it meant?
1: It's just a word that sounds like it might be a horror movie. That's what it is. Yeah,
0: they could have called the movie... uh... The
1: Foreboding. Ooh. That would be good, right? That does sound like a good movie, yeah. Did we talk about the thing I was thinking of as the Bartok thing that he does for Spooky Atmosphere in a lot of the scenes having to do with the adoption and the priests and the baby swap? (laughs) Da, 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 da. These creepy strings. Oh, yeah, I like that thing. I like that thing. It's a real good job. I just wanted to give it some airtime here. (laughs) This particular kind of wriggling around chromatically. I think of as typically Bartok. You know, it's not atonal. It's tonal. It's just uneasy. Things are not good when that's happening. I think you hear that in the first scene, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: I mean, I wanted to talk about, we've already done the whole love theme. I might bring us back to the love theme for just a second here. You keep joking about how Ave Satani was nominated for best song, but you know that there is Ah. a normal song on the soundtrack.
0: Fair enough. We should play this. Yeah, so apparently, again, this is a phenomenon we've touched on many times now. He had this love theme in the score, and the producer said, "Hey, why don't we uh, see if we can make a song out of that? And apparently, Jerry Goldsmith's wife was around for this conversation, and she volunteered to write the lyrics
1: carol goldsmith carol heather goldsmith and i think she's credited as carol heather on the soundtrack and then he says that they tried to record it with a chorus and it sounded too cheesy even for them Uh (laughs) uh-huh
0: to which my response was oh you think the (laughs) chorus singing this is what made it sound cheesy huh
1: And so they said, well, Carol, why don't you just sing it? And she sang it. That's the story he tells. It does occur to me that maybe they in private were like, Carol, you'll sing a song on the soundtrack. We'll just (laughs) set it up so that you get to do it. And why not? Why shouldn't they?
0: Sure, she sings it nicely enough.
1: Yes, and she wrote these lyrics. John, can you summarize for us the meaning of (laughs) The Piper Dreams by Carol?
0: (laughs) Nope. And
2: the Piper Dreams in rings of misty white Knowing in his sleep Dreams only keep Through
1: the night So these lyrics aren't super clear to you? <laughs>
0: but <laughs> I didn't pay a lot of attention to them, but no, I have no idea what it's talking about.
2: Pretending to perceive dreams to the... Who dare suppose they'd
1: believe? Well, now's the time to pay attention, John, to really figure out what's going on here, because <laughs> it's important.
0: All right. What do you got? What, what's your exegesis of uh, these lyrics?
1: Well, I thought it was funny that they so resist making sense, but I did actually ultimately come to have a theory about what these lyrics are about. <laughs> and the theory is in part inspired by. Watching Jerry Goldsmith go up on stage to receive his one and only Oscar. He was nominated many times, I think 18 times, something like that. And this is the only time he won for best score for this movie, The Omen. And I think Jerry Goldsmith was great, so I'm happy for him to get an award. Any quibbles we have about this score, don't hold against him. receiving it. Although it is odd that he received it over Bernard Herrmann's two last scores both nominated posthumously, Obsession and Taxi Driver, which is a truly great score.
0: Yeah, you're right. It is odd that, say, Taxi Driver didn't win, A, because it, yeah, is an all-time great score, and B, because he had just died. Do you think he'd get the sympathy vote? That's what the Academy loves to do. It is very bizarre. Maybe it was because Bernard Herman was not uh, the friendliest guy.
1: Who knows? Who knows why it happened? Jerry Goldsmith said he was sure that Bernard Herman was going to win and did not expect to win it this time, just as he didn't expect to win it. All the other times, because he was so used to being nominated and not winning but he does indeed win it and now listen
2: jerry goldsmith for the omen
1: here is the academy awards orchestra playing ave satani (laughs) to welcome him up on stage and then he says i I don't really know what to say (laughs) he's Uh, grateful he thanks the makers of the movie
2: richard donner and harvey bernard for making the film in the first place uh lionel newman for conducting it so beautifully arthur borden for Beautiful orchestration.
1: And then he says to his wife,
2: In the Piper's dream did come true, dear Carol. Thank you. Ah.
1: And I thought, oh, I get it. The Piper is Jerry. Ah. This is Carol's song about Jerry. When the Piper dreams, he writes his music. The Piper, he's a musician. His music are these dreams of silver days and far away. And those who are willing to believe can enjoy the easy listening song that you're listening to (laughs) and all of the warm feelings that it inspires. I think that's what the song is about. That's a good guess.
0: All right. Jerry the Piper Piper Goldsmith is what I'm going to call him now.
1: Well, it's a guess. You know, it's not confirmed. But when she says he dreams his dreams in rings of misty white, I was like, well, maybe that's his hair. He had like a big puff of white hair. <laughs>
0: Well, I thought it was like notes. I thought you were going to say it was you know, the circles of note heads on a staff page I guess be. those are black, enclosing white.
1: There's a lot of room for personal interpretation in the Piper dream. But <laughs> yeah, I didn't hate this tune. I wouldn't necessarily recommend the song as song, but uh, I did think it was a pretty tune. You know, a thing I like about it is that the second phrase is sort of oh, I do like, half syncopated. It's a
0: kind of a hemiola. It's ambiguous. Right?
1: It's a song in three, but then the accompaniment moves halfway through the bar which makes it sound sort of like six eight but you kind of understand that this melody still wants to be in three so it has an interesting
0: i did note that that is something i like about this melody even though i don't think it belongs in this movie
1: (laughs) uh okay good then we can share that
0: You think when Gregory Peck goes back to Rome with David Warner to try to figure out what's going on and find the paper trail about what might have happened to his real son, you think he's thinking, I liked it better when I was here with Audrey Hepburn. (laughs) No, in that movie, he's palling around Rome with a photographer too, so it must have seemed like old times for him.
1: Yeah. I can see there's a lot of commonalities there. Did you see that Gregory Peck, you know, just a couple months before they were shooting this, his son committed suicide and then he had to make this schlocky-ass movie about killing your own son?
0: I did see that. It's very, very sad. I thought I saw somewhere where he actually was eager to do it because he thought he could process his grief to some degree through it
1: yeah i have a lot of respect for actors because their job is to take things seriously and put their hearts into it and the real ones really do yeah and you know i can joke about how schlocky the movie is but yeah it was a real experience that yes he might have done some actual processing of this true grief which is strange to think about while you're watching a movie you know in which a guy gets beheaded by a (laughs) sheet of glass it's strange it's strange And people are so into that beheading one of the all-time gore deaths but it looks ridiculous. (laughs) His head looks like it doesn't weigh anything and it's just resting (laughs) on top of his body like a volleyball. I
0: read that David Warner was uh, chuffed that he got to keep his fake beheaded head.
1: And did you see that Jerry Goldsmith says he's never watched that and he doesn't like scary movies and (laughs) Uh refuses to look at such things?
0: Jerry Goldsmith doesn't like scary movies, you
1: say? That's right.
0: Well, I wonder if that (laughs) explains why.
1: Why he spent so much of this movie not writing scary movie music? Yeah,
0: why he spent so much of this movie really trying to convince you, no, you're not watching a scary movie. What? What are you talking about scary movie?
1: I just yet again will fight that that is not a way of describing what he's doing. He's not trying to convince (laughs) you that you're watching another kind of movie. He's trying to tell you that the reason a scary movie has value is because it hurts this other thing. He wants you to know what it hurts. But yeah, listen to what he does for the beheading that he didn't look at. his own imagination some horrible thing he's not responding to what's on screen and indeed i wonder if he was responding to what's on screen for much of the movie Uh i guess i'll lead into my closing statement here okay good we've said in previous conversations that movie score is kind of giving you access to a more general more archetypal a more mythic version or level Mm -hmm. of this story i feel like If I listen to this soundtrack and imagine the tale of the omen that it is the soundtrack to, I can get excited about it because listen to all this exciting sound and listen to the suggestion of spaces and forces and action and tension and all these things... I think if you can get into the frame of mind where that imagined movie is the real movie that you're watching and the visuals are kind of uh, (laughs) along for the ride. They're secondary. They just happen to be these visuals. That's not what's important. What you're really watching is this mythic imaginary horror movie. I think people could probably have a strong experience with this movie and apparently some people did. The movie, as I imagined it before I watched it, (laughs) and will continue to imagine it after having watched it. I like. I like that movie. You like the imaginary movie. I like the imaginary version of The Omen that is more idealized, more on point, (laughs) more in keeping with what this music gets excited about. Because Jerry Goldsmith is clearly getting excited about composing at various points in this score. Oh, sure. If I just imagine something that deserves that, (laughs) it's a really good movie score. Because unfortunately, you can't say... Well, let's just think of it as concert music, because it really doesn't work as just concert music. It's too repetitive. It's too much about effect, There's not really a formal through line there. It has to be movie music mm-hmm. for an imagined movie. <laughs> Actually, while I'm talking about this, so Jerry Goldsmith wrote both of the sequels, Interestingly, in the second one, it's like he restricted himself to not using the same music. He wanted to write new music, and it ends up sounding like someone else doing a copycat score. (laughs) It's like he copycatted himself. This is his main title to Damien Omen 2. Yeah, that is the omen again <laughs> but not the omen. It's a different piece that is basically the same thing which is an interesting thing to do for yourself and then the third one goes a little bit more Ben-Hur sort of more grander of the religious context because that's what that movie is about. Anyway I enjoyed imagining this movie, I was a little bit surprised at how little the movie wanted to help me with that, but I can't be stopped, I'm gonna keep imagining it and enjoying the album.
0: Well, I certainly enjoy the album too. And yeah, I didn't love this movie. I didn't think it really hung together. And I think you've identified a really insightful reason that it doesn't hang together and work and that the score meshing with the movie isn't the kind of transcendent combination that we've praised on the show before. Because yeah, the imaginary movie that the score is talking about is not the movie. When it's a great movie and a great score... The movie knows about the imaginary movie behind it. The movie is intentionally deploying that as part of its storytelling toolkit. You know, Star Wars, the whole point is to convince you that this is a myth that you already know the story to... And the score is right there with you, making the existence of this world feel totally obvious and natural. And you can apply the same kind of analysis to so many of the other great scores that we've talked about. That The underlying myth of things, what the score is making you think about and feel, is something that the movie had intentionality about. That's when it's great. So I agree that's not happening here.
1: Yeah, you can tell that the people who made this movie had no idea the music was going to sound like this. Yeah, yeah. You can feel that. They did not know that the Church of Satan was going to be <laughs> chanting up a storm. The movie is taken aback by it. And that's why it feels like Jerry Goldsmith having a field day. Like he was handed this low budget thing and was like, stand back, everybody. I've got some ideas. Yeah. And then they come tumbling out all over it.
0: Yeah, well, you know, hear, here to those ideas. I really enjoyed listening to them. I really enjoyed seeing how he's able to marshal the kooky versions of the orchestral instruments alongside the non-kooky versions of them and give you this bizarre, unique landscape of sound that you can't get anywhere else. I really enjoyed hearing it. Right.
1: But is it scary?
0: (laughs) Look, man, I don't know. Uh, These days, what does it even mean to be scary anymore?
1: I mean, this is such a dated way of being scary. No one would ever, ever do this, right?
0: Right. That's probably another reason why I wasn't really scared
1: by it. Because it's out of style. It's many decades out of style. Right. If
0: I had watched this as a kid, I would have been scared. I was right to not watch this and movies like it when I was a kid.
1: Oh, yeah, me too. I wouldn't have been able to handle this as a kid because I couldn't handle anything. Sure. I'm a stupid little kid. (laughs) Like the stupid little kid in the movie. Like
0: the stupid little kid in the movie. Full circle, Andy.
1: All right. What
0: is next
1: let's take a look in the bucket (laughs) all right the choir is chanting oh boy the balls are rolling there they go here goes the balls all right let's just get it over with like
0: ping pong balls inside of a piano
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna reach in Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna take out the ball and look Uh and it (gasps) says aha spartacus by Alex North.
0: Ooh, I'm Spartacus. Uh,
1: No, John, I am Spartacus.
0: Wow, well, uh, we'll have to get to the bottom of this. Uh, That's cool. I think that'll be fun to do. We've only done the one Alex North score.
1: Yeah, and he had a lot more range than just that. And yeah, as I recall from a long, long time ago, this is an interesting score. It should make for an interesting conversation. Yeah,
0: I think so. I think we're going to wind up talking about a love theme for that one, too.
1: Yeah, this is a classic example of the Movies must have a love theme, and so we'll talk about it.
0: Uh, all right, and so we shall. And
1: that'll be uh, a change of pace. I always like when the pace changes.
0: Sure. Who who needs this pace?
1: <laughs> it's not Halloween anymore. No. It's Spartacus time. Well,
0: listen, thanks for coming with us on our special Halloween episode. I hope you got some <laughs> spooky chills out of it.
1: The specialness of it was mostly contained in our saying Halloween like that <laughs> instead of just normally.
0: Eh? 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 Pretty spooky, huh?
1: <laughs> Pretty special. I hope you savored it. I hope you saved some of that candy.
0: Hey, Andy, you know what? This is actually uh, the end of an era here because you know what we can't say anymore.
1: What? No, I don't know what we can't say
0: anymore. Uh, we can't ask our listeners to go and write us a review on iTunes. Because there is no more iTunes. Apple got rid of it in the latest uh, OS update. Uh, what is there now? They split it up into uh, different programs for music and podcast and TV and stuff. So now it's just your podcast app. It doesn't have quite the ring to it. But What is
1: the store called? It's probably just the
0: store. <laughs> I don't know. Go into whatever you do with your podcast and write us a review. It helps us out. Helps put the show in front of new listeners.
1: And or get in touch with us on Twitter at... at. Score settlers.
0: Yeah. Uh, Give us things to throw into the bucket. Uh, We've thrown a bunch of them in there.
1: Yeah, that's right. Suggest movies. You know, this hasn't been a very spooky, spooky episode. (laughs) But we can make it spooky right now. John, come over here. Look at this. (gasps) Look in here.
0: Ooh. That is spooky.
1: It is spooky. Wait. Step a little closer. What? What? And... (laughs) (laughs)